it was funny. I was looking through some of my old audit forms and everything. And, you know, I've got some files that go back quite a while and kind of reminded me of what my thought process was back then. And I remember one time doing an audit and it took me probably three or four hours to get there, whatever, spent a couple of days, came back, digested some information and realized there was a part of one building that I didn't really have the exhaust fans laid out. Like mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know what their exhaust system was there. And uh, I was given some liberties at this job, you know, and so I, you know, a couple of days later I drove back up and then, you know, whatever, a week later, I don't know if it was an expense report or something. And my boss said, you know, Hey, why'd you go back up there? And I just, I told him, I said, Oh, I didn't, I didn't locate some of these exhaust fans. And so we had a nice talk just about, well, how, how important was that information or do you think it's going to be? After a while, I came to realize, boy, there were some ways to even, you know, estimate what was up there. But bottom line was, it didn't really matter. The exhaust fans right there, we were doing a an energy audit more on the preliminary side. And uh, it really made me stop and think about the information that you really need to capture from the site. And it's not always completely evident before you go there, I guess. Yeah, I, it's a great way to think about it. Well, with that being said, I think we'll dive right into it. Welcome to VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the energy audit process. So maybe a good starting point is just the audit process in general. And I know the last episode we talked about the initial walkthrough, right, which you may one may consider that an ASHRAE level one audit if you're going there to kind of identify some pretty obvious ECMs. But what do we take with that and the audit process moving forward from that? Obviously, other site, more site walkthroughs, there's forms to fill out that's taking more photos, putting out data loggers, and so on and so forth. So that's what this podcast is really going to be about. Maybe we want to outline what the difference between a level one, a level two, and a level three energy audit is? I guess I volunteer for that. Perfect. So the level one walkthrough is, as you identified, basically the walkthrough audit. Very, how do we want to say, abbreviated, minimal amounts of measurement, if any, are taken. Nameplate data is used as the basis for calculation of cost avoidance in many cases. And it really is used to identify with a very broad brush what opportunities may be available, which may require more detailed analysis. It's n- typically not suitable for making substantial capital improvements or investment in capital improvements. And for that, you would go to level two or level three. Level two is basically more detailed typically does not include anything like building modeling, may or may not include some spot identification of areas where short-term data loggers may be required or integration of building automation trend trend data. But again, primarily spot measurements, one-time measurements, and potentially a few trends, but not a requirement. And then in level three is a very detailed analysis, typically much trend data, perhaps a building model, 
but basically to be able to identify the correlation of the building performance and energy consumption with regard to outside air. And just to understand the application of when a level one, level two, or level three audit may be used, in most cases, the economic buyer or the investor or the building owner will ask a question regarding capital improvements that revolve around how much will it save, how soon can it happen, and how certain are you that these cost avoidances or savings can be achieved? And the last question, how certain are you, really drives the level one, level two, level three uh, in terms of what level of audit is appropriate for the capital improvement being evaluated. How many instances is, I know we talked about our, our walkthrough analysis, how many instances like for a level two energy audit, is that initial walkthrough part of the level two audit? Or do you find yourself going to facilities, doing your walkthrough, having that conversation, and then coming back for more information? Well, in, in from my experience, you can't do a level two or level three audit. You can't even begin to estimate even the cost of a level two or level three audit without doing a level one walkthrough. Okay, yeah. Uh, the, the level one walkthrough will give you a broad brush overview of what's happening in the building. And it really doesn't matter to me whether it's a, a school, a hospital, a governmental facility, a DOD installation, or, or an industrial facility. You need to do that walkthrough analysis just to get an acclimation for the scope of the project, the potential atypical processes which may be contained within that building. and really gauge the amount of effort and data analysis that'll be required to do a level two or level three audit within that facility. So the level one audit kind of gives you the baseline to say, if you're coming with forms like Nick mentioned that he's, he has or has used, that's when you'll generate those to say, this is how much, you know, these are the major mechanical pieces of equipment. This is what it the general layout is, this is where I want to put my sensors if I'm doing any data logging, so on and so forth. So that level one, that walkthrough analysis kind of gives you the baseline to say, okay, when I come back, this is this is what I want to know and this is what I need to help identify that. That's correct. Yeah, and I would agree and add that. So the level one through level three range, it can be a very compressed time frame, or it can expand out over a number of years, but obviously the more duration between that level one and the level three, a lot of things can change in there. And then there's also cases where uh, level ones have been completed and level twos, and maybe a different organization is brought in to build upon that. But I would agree with Mark that you still need to have the eyes on it from a level one perspective so you get an understanding of the facilities, but nothing wrong with building on the work that's already been done there as well. I'll be the uh, the cynic on the on the podcast this morning. I typically don't like to trust anybody else's work. We've been engaged, you know, in, in a variety of legal actions to ascertain the correctness, the appropriateness of both measurements, correlation analysis, M and B plans, commissioning you name it. And in cases where projects have failed, 
it's because there's either a lack of clarity or correctness or just plain skip steps that resulted in a failure of a project. So when someone says, well, we did this audit, we want you to make sure that this is right and we want to do, uh, I may say, okay, but in general, we'll go back and basically confirm the accuracy, correctness of the calculations that are applied and basically go through it to make sure that it's suitable for building on. So you'd be taking your own measurements if there were measurements of airflow, temperatures, so on and so forth, amps, stuff like that. I assume you'd go back and want your own data to cross-reference and verify. Yeah, much like you go to the dentist, right? You go to the dentist for a cleaning and then they poke and prod around a little bit until they find a soft spot, then they start to drill. (laughs) What dentist do you go to? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's what happens. So I'm just okay. <laughs> so Mark, I, I hear what you're saying. You, if you went, in, if you were called into a customer site and they said, "Hey, we had this great study done last year," you wouldn't necessarily say, "I don't even want to see it," but you would take that information. And I agree, you're not going to rely on it for, let's say, necessarily their trending results or savings projections, but it obviously would help to build that level of understanding. So maybe some of those level one, level two steps can be consolidated a little bit and build on some intelligence that's already been gathered about the buildings. But I fully agree. I mean, as built drawings, sometimes you, or, you, know, you should verify to make sure that they're accurate to the degree that you can count on the rest of the information that's in there. Well, we've talked in our, on our BMS podcast about as built and how they can be uh, they can be very dangerous at times to assume that what the as built documentation says is true well and that's you know tied in directly with this when you're looking for information on a building there's lots of places to get it whether it's people you know that run the buildings occupants as built design drawings observations measurements it can be So back to what I was saying, the process itself is not a one, two, three type of thing. And it can be extremely varied as you go through it, depending on the site and uh, objectives. I could not imagine like not being on site, getting all that information myself for any kind of audit, you know, to rely on any quote unquote existing information. Well, and that's a good point, Nick. And so especially when you get into the ESPC realm, there and energy, every single energy audit is different to some extent. And in the world of ESPC, the simple retrofits, okay, we plan to do a fluorescent LED change out. There's X number of fixtures. We'll put some data loggers in. We'll see what the run times are. That doesn't require the level of intense data analysis that things like chiller change outs or potentially self-generation or co-generation or any of those things require. So even though you may do a level three audit, you don't need to measure to the level of granularity that you do on a large scale capital intensive project that has lots of interactions and moving parts on every single retrofit in the, the, that is included in the project. So with experience and, and guidance, you can adjust your, your 
manpower loading and your calculations and your building modeling according to the requirements to get the level of certainty that's required by the investment entity. Well put. Mm -hmm. So through this process, obviously the auditor or auditors would be, they're the prime individuals involved, but who, like what other stakeholders are involved in this process as you go and you, you gather this information and how much, um, you know, how much certainty, certainty do we want? And all of this, you know, other stakeholders, probably the owner would have some involvement through this process, anybody else and how much involvement with those other entities would the auditor have through the process? One person or one role that I've thought was very valuable as you go through some of the detailed auditing or even on a preliminary case is a, a project manager, some kind of construction expert. Uh, again, depending on the types of projects you may be looking at, and obviously you don't need the project manager to necessarily walk through a level one lighting survey, right. but as you get into more complicated, and I'm thinking more of what Mark was alluding to, you know, some major physical modifications of, uh, you know, a, a plant nature or adding some kind of new energy recovery or production system, uh, the quicker you kind of get a handle on orders of magnitude of cost and difficulties, and that can kind of help refine your approach to it as you go on into successive phases. So help me paint this picture then. Like to me, I, as the energy auditor, am going through a facility to help identify what projects should or need to be done. Like, why would a project manager already be involved? Oh, maybe not in the initial stages when it's a level one necessarily. But okay, yeah. Again, there have been times, and I'm I'm thinking back to I worked on a team where, you know, we were there was, you know, an account executive who was uh, identifying the opportunities and in touch with people said, hey, we may be interested in this. Come on out. We gather the requisite information beforehand. But mm -hmm. again, we in this particular market. We we kind of understood that cogens didn't happen every day, but we had a lot and a multiplicity of your more standard energy conservation measures or facility improvement measures, and we would go out there as a team and and walk through the buildings. And they have a ton of experience too on the project management side. Right, and he would be kind of thinking about costs, and I'd be thinking about energy impact. Yep, and it it did work well for some of the more, you know simple conservation measures where we could streamline the process. Mm -hmm. One thing that I would like to at least bring up, we're talking about energy auditors and especially the association, association of energy engineers has drawn a distinction between energy auditors and energy engineers. And I think there is a, uh, there's some validity to that. It's not always, although I think Nick in your business and I know in my business, the individuals that are gathering the data are oftentimes the same people that are doing the analysis of the data. That's not always true. So when we talk about auditors, we, we are, we on this podcast are already blurring the line between energy auditing and energy engineering. When we're talking about laying out schematic drawings and we have a project manager involved and we're talking about cost estimating so that's gone beyond the boundaries of what we would consider auditing work. Maybe not that you or I might consider outside the boundaries, but that other folks may consider outside the boundaries. And uh, I, th I think every 
business entity as a slightly different model, but I know if we were doing hundreds and hundreds of audits a year, we would probably have a uh, different group doing the actual data gathering under uh, more guidance and a different group doing uh, energy engineering with some close coordination with the auditors. That's an interesting way to think about that. I, I mean, grow, like just being brought up into the industry with you, never experienced that. So, I was thinking the same exact thing, but then Mark, your last example, well, yeah, I would have to see the scale getting up there pretty much where, well, yeah, I don't well, know. I don't know how I feel about the that. AE yeah, offers a, they offer a certification for a building energy auditor. Well, I guess because AEE says something and defines something doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily embrace it fully. Just uh, and I'm not suggesting that you do. All I'm saying is that I know there are large entities that draw a very clear distinction between energy auditing and energy engineering with auditing predominantly data gathering and bill analysis. I must say as a looking at it from the eyes of an energy engineer, I think it'd be more challenging, especially depending on the facility to be the one engineering it and not have done the audit though. I think there's gotta be some really good synergy between like the auditors and the engineer at that point to be able to, maybe not, but it, no, I agree. I'm a very visual person. If I'm going to be doing the engineering on this, I want to have seen the facility and gathered the information myself, but yeah, well, I'm also thinking of, of, of the time frame and everything. I'm seeing both points. This is interesting. I love having my mind changed on things. And <laughs> this is something I never really thought of before. Cause like Clayton said, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to change minds, but I think, you know, there might be some feedback that says, well, you're blurring the lines between engineering and auditing. And I just want people to know that we recognize there is some distinction between the actual data gathering process and the engineering process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, you're completely correct in your point. It's just weird to think or different to think about it as somebody else would be getting that information for me if I was going to be doing the engineering. Hmm. But if you had them getting every possible info, piece of information that you could think of, and then you would sort through it and decide, well, I didn't really care about the serial number on the boiler just yet, but thanks for getting it. And thanks for, getting all these specs on all these little compressors out there for every one of these package units. I, I don't know exactly how that would work. So I, I'm, I'm ignorant right. of separating it into two distinct teams that go out there. But with that said, yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously two distinct roles when you're out there gathering information mm-hmm. and you know, all the information you gather is not necessarily done on site, but I guess, to what Clayton and I, I think are thinking is that when you're out there too, you're also processing that information saying, okay, is this worth this amount of time? I have to do to track down this piece of information. Right. Yeah. And you're synthesizing everything else you've maybe seen or what you know going into it about, okay, here's what we're probably interested in seeing. So I need to divert this plan to go find this piece of information and focus on the other things. But yeah, well, well taken though. And I, I will, I'll, the the editorial opinion on this is that we, you know, VS Energy, and I'm sure you probably also, Nick, I know we are extraordinarily competitive on a cost basis when people say, well, we need to get another price. Do your thing is, is my response because 
in a matter of say a month, we could be from through the audit to have schematic drawings and budgets put together on some pretty large projects simply because, you know, at the end of day five, we already know how the pipe will be run, how the air handlers would be laid out, what, right. what the controls points would be. We have a point list and sequence new sequences of operation for the air handlers written. So there's a huge amount of synergy to be gained by just what Clayton said. We have eyes and ears on the project. We know what's there. We have the boots on the ground. We can have brought brought in contractors to estimate, you know, whatever they need to estimate. So there's a huge synergy. All I'm saying is there that not everybody approaches it that way. Yeah, even like to Nick's point, having like a project manager again. This is just a, what what I've seen. My little slice of the pie is we're going through the facilities and we're kind of doing that estimation and feasibility if, is can this be installed how much would this cost to be installed yeah for that particular market you know which was a lot of the, the k through 12 and big yeah. school districts but it worked because time is a premium too and if mm-hmm. you get customers right. we're interested in moving so we would go out there and spend a few days and again at night we put our notes together and just like you said we might have mechanical contractors out there the next day or, you know, a day later looking at things and we're ready to go. We've all seen the buildings. We've been through them. So come the school board meeting, we know there's their buildings, all of us. But again, it's different. The process is yeah. uh, variable. But again, quality should not be in what you're out there to do. And going back to what we're talking with level one, level two, level three, and the certainty that you get after each one of those phases you know they obviously build on each other where if you were going to take the results from a walkthrough and build a project from it your chance of success is i don't know could be split 50 50 could be lower but as you get into level two and then obviously level three those margins shrink down quite a bit on the cost and the saving side and the timeline right and uh so there is a lot of merit to a process such as that well, I think it was an interesting point you made in our last episode, Nick, about you you generally don't go through an energy audit fully identifying, is this a level one, a level two, or a level three? It's an energy audit. And you, I assume you, by saying that, you mean you, you get the level of detail required per the customer's requirements, not necessarily defining what it is. It could be a 1.5 or a level 2.5, if you wanted to call it that. Well, exactly. And all different companies and, and companies I've, I've worked for early on and clients I have now, you know, they all call it different phases, but mm-hmm. you can figure out what it is. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I've never, I don't think ever, have referred to it as a level one, level two, level three, or had a customer ask me, is this a level two or level one or anything like that? But it's just a lot of the same, same meat to it. And I suppose that might just be a mechanism to gear um, the expectations so everyone's on the same page of what needs to be done and what is going to be done. Well, and you know what, thinking about it, if I had to say to a customer, we're going to do a level one audit, he says, well, what is that? And then I have to explain it, right? Mm -hmm. And then the difference, well, what is a level two? What's a level three? Yeah. But we're going, we're going to do, well, we're going to get some concepts together for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand that. Yeah. You want to walk through our buildings, you want to you know, access to our facilities managers, which would be another key person to have 
on these audits as you're walking through and definitely the more complex a, a facility and operations you want somebody that's knowledgeable you know walking around with you but right so nick do you ever do do you or the escos require a specific what's your margin of error what's your you know certainty how accurate will your cost avoidance projections be any of those kind of things what are your target numbers in general i would say i'm a little bit removed from that part of the process because i do tend to be more involved with projects that are near they're, they're well into that level three phase and we're working actively towards we're in contract negotiations about to start building the project gotcha okay well i guess you could answer the question for yourself mark for the listeners what are you typically i mean i would i would just say a walkthrough uh it could be anywhere from plus or minus 20 percent to 40 percent you know one mm -hmm. day we're talking one day of yep really all all the walkthrough analysis is is for is to generate a very high level list of opportunities uh doing a level two uh survey and analysis I would think you should easily be plus or minus, you know, 15, 20% at the outside and level three within way inside 10%. Right. Well, and that's the thing with a lot of the, the markets I deal with mostly with the guaranteed savings programs right? Uh, and projects, you need to be pretty close because you're guaranteeing that money for, mm -hmm. you know, up to 25 years and there's a lot of risk associated with it, you know, that you can't necessarily control. So risk management, yeah, is a huge part of it. Do I think there should be more of it when they uh, come down to, well, they calculate savings and then there's a guarantee applied to it, but there's a huge gray area I feel in, are we guaranteeing too little? Frankly, not a lot of huge shortfalls in the industry as a whole. It's still, very healthy and robust, but I think there's some opportunities that aren't looked at from that perspective of really how certain are we that we're going to achieve these, these savings or the performance. You're just talking about putting, if you'd call it a safety factor on your guarantees. Yeah, that would be, yeah, the equivalent of it. But right. you know, there's, you can get into, you know, when you're looking at the variables that are affected and trying to see, well, how much are we expected to this to vary and a lot of that can be controlled by then what steps you've already taken to define your baseline and your level threes mm -hmm. right, and how confident everybody is as well as what you're going to do on the other side of that to be certain that the you know savings occurred right well i think that from our experience and e even my experience at a Fortune 100 company that was in the business, a lot of that is also mitigated by the um, contractual functions identifying what measurement and verification methodologies will be used. When you start to break out each, each facility improvement measure being uh, measured using IPMVP option B, which is retrofit isolation, doesn't take into account any of the interactions between facility improvement measures, et cetera. I mean, that really makes it a lot easier than when you go to whole building analysis and have to do a building model and 
basically do the calculation of savings using that. And typically when you use the whole building model versus a compilation of uh, retrofit isolation or partial uh, isolation, the savings are less because it, it takes out all of the interaction between measures. So I, I think there are contractual uh, risk mitigation functions, but then there's also, uh, as Nick said, there's a, a hedge that goes in when you get from, here's what we calculated as the savings will be, and then here's what we'll guarantee. And that guarantee of performance is usually 60 to 80% of the actual calculated mm -hmm. savings. Well, I don't know about that last range, but what what do you think it is? Well, I think it varies depending on on projects, but you know the guaranteed factors are, and again, it depends on the interaction. But I don't, I think sixty to eighty percent of what's calculated as a guarantee is on is very much on the low end. Really, I do. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, for my for my projects, I work on right. Uh, so what's your, what do you think it is? I mean, what's your experience tell you it is? Oh, over 90%. Really? really? Wow. I, I would have not. That's a I've, big number. Yeah. That's it, it is, but you also had to remember there have been a lot of changes, you know, and, uh, I know I'm old. Thanks. No, no, not <laughs> that. But for me, just even the ability to, uh, I don't know. I'm a proponent of M and V trying to have your goal be, you're going to M and V like it was calculated because Correct. then you're kind of building on that. So it does go back to this level three and really, you know, how confident are you in the baseline? And again, it's, there's a lot of contractual stuff. These are financial deals. And I remember this project and which kind of really highlighted it for me. It had to be 10 years ago and it was a boiler decentralization project, basically, uh, so they all agreed, you know, this is what the steam plan is now using, right? This was the baseline. Everything was, was, was vetted. It was agreed to. And then they were going to measure post-installation natural gas consumption. And the numbers were so huge because of the inefficiencies of the steam plant. And, and remember, so those baseline costs are locked away. Nobody's going to evaluate them again. And their natural gas, the bottom line is, their consumption was twice what they thought it was going to be, but the savings were still there and then some because of this you know, disparity between here was what your baseline was, here's what we thought you were going to use. It was so much less. So even if we really mess up on what we think your gas usage is going to be, it's still not going to raise it back up to the level of what you were operating with, not in a long shot. So in the risk that was applied to this project, I thought it was so inappropriate to, well, it was good for the ESCO, I would say that, but I don't think the customer necessarily understood the risk that they were taking on by not having a more, I guess, in tune uh, measurement and verification plan or the fact that, you know, the estimate was blown so bad and they still achieved the savings. Well, that's a little luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, was it shrewd measurement and verification planning or just uh, poor risk, I guess, alignment? Yeah, I, I mean, did they – was it hot water or steam? As I remember, it was – I think it was hot water, actually. 
Yeah. And they used steam in the plant and I think they converted it all. Converted? Yeah. And then ran it through. So there was a lot of waste there. Absolutely. I mean, there's, so there was some big improvements there, but I guess the point being the risk could have been uh, increased on that, your safety factor, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you're talking about financially, that could have lowered the term quite a bit on this project. And again, this project was a typical bundled project, which had, which had a lot of different improvement measures throughout the whole right. site. But going back to the guarantee, so I think there's a, uh, the analysis a lot of times has become more robust. So people understand the baseline more. Measurement and verification plans can be laid out so that risk is properly allocated and understood. And that's why you can see guarantee safety factors increasing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about data a little bit then, because obviously data drives all of this. Um, and I don't know if we can get into manufacturers of data loggers, preferences, stuff like that. But in general, for like level two and level three, you, you're more than likely probably putting out data loggers rather than just spot checking temperatures or amps and writing it down, right? Well, there has to be a source of data, whether it be from an existing building management system or it comes from self, you know, Mm -hmm. self-installed data logger standalone and either way is okay with me. So you would trust like a already existing BMS to say, these are the amps and KW or whatever, all that information rather than getting it yourself in some cases? In some cases. I mean, yeah. it's worthwhile to go out and check and say. Yeah, I guess you could spot check and just cross-reference yeah, the check. accuracy. It's worthwhile to do that. Yeah, and, right. And assuming you can get the granularity, I mean, I, I, I don't like 15-minute or greater intervals on data mm-hmm. when we're l- looking at uh, savings because there's just too much opportunity for variance within that window that you can't see. Then it also tells you whether the control loops are stable. It tells you a lot of information. So, but even with, if you're going to put a data logger out in an occupied area, I mean, would you agree that 15 minutes would be stable enough to get an idea of the profile of the temperatures? In a space, you mean? Yeah. Oh Yeah. Yeah, but I'm. I know what you're saying with uh, kind of miking up an air handling unit with a right. bunch of sensors you're going to use for yeah, two right. weeks. You want to be able to see. And, and back to what you're saying about trusting the, the existing building automation system. You know, again, it really depends situationally. But mm-hmm. you go out and do some spot checks on zone temperatures too. You know, with a little handheld instrument and quickly see is that relatively close to what their BAS system is saying. Uh, status on equipment could be something different, but no, that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, I guess from my experience, I've, I've really never put any logger out with more than a five minute logging interval. I think, I don't know for like the, the ability of these, well, these loggers. I agree. And even uh, in our BMS specs, when we still specify quite a number of um, large scale building automation systems, we require that everything be trended in five minute intervals. And, and it used to be that was considered excessive. Now it's not even a big deal, you know, just to go to five minute intervals on every controller output, every measured variable, every position feedback, s- simply for 
you know, obviously operation and maintenance information, but then in general, we'll have uh, large scale dashboarding platforms attached so that that data can then be fed into the energy dashboard and used for right. things like bill simulation and bill calculation year over year, period mm -hmm. over period performance and all those kinds of things. Yep. I guess that lead us pretty well into our next question or discussion is tell me, and I think we covered this earlier in the podcast, kind of bouncing around, but tell me about the financial analysis involved in, in each of the level of energy audits. Well, I think it could range from, I guess, when you're starting with a level one, you know, you could prim primarily be looking at simple payback, the cost to implement, mm -hmm. try to buy the savings you're going to achieve. As you go through successive phases and level three being a, a very formal uh, contract ready pro forma cash flow analysis over you know the term of the agreement and would include you know, obviously your savings but any debt payments that would be a part of the project and then showing your net cash flow and inclusive of any service or maintenance agreements that are either added or deleted yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's important, you know, and just exactly as Nick said, level one is a snapshot. Right. So there's no time value money issues. It's straight line payback. It's those kind of simple things. Level two, you you're into a timeline now, where you may look at net present value. You may look at either discounted or undiscounted cash flow, either pre or post tax, uh, depending on what the financial metrics are. I mean, we had one big customer who their metric was NPV plus one over I over E, which, okay. I mean, everybody has a different way to look at things, but right. when you stack up projects, that was their metric. It, it really doesn't matter, but it is important that you understand from the customer exactly how they would like to see projects presented because there's always a variable out there if, if particularly large companies have their own internal metric, you want to make sure that either you do it with, mm -hmm. you know, their supervision or that we understand the, the calculation or you provide them the information they need to do it uh, versus, you know, let's go back two or three different times to get, get all the information out. And as Nick said, you know, it's important that you capture either an increase or decrease in the uh, maintenance requirements as well as you know the actual operating operating cost plus be very uh, prudent and even conservative in considering the actual forecasted life cycle of new equipment. We hate to see chillers put in with a 25-year life cycle just based on technology changes, or if they're in for a 25-year life cycle, that you include major rebuilds at 15 years or whatever the real number is versus. Right. Uh, Hey, best case scenario. Hey, I plan to get two hundred fifty thousand miles out of my car, but not without doing at least one major repair somewhere in that two hundred fifty thousand miles. With uh, projects that would include something like a combined heat and power, or some advanced uh, heat recovery systems, or more combined heat and power. That you know, there's some major engine rebuilds and uh, significant maintenance that must be built in there. You know, and that can hit you every five years, every three years, but there's significant cost too. So when you're talking about the time value of money and looking at the, the time frame of the project, you know, all that's important to uh, primarily understand 
Uh, well, one, what is your, how's your customer going to look at it when he's making decisions too, but also the contract vehicle. And a lot of that's, you know, you get into the federal and state guaranteed savings programs. It is more of a, a net benefit and that annual cash flow metric with some payback criteria. But then if you go into private industry, they might be looking at something more of internal rate of return. Right. And, uh, it's very important to understand those metrics early on because sometimes you can prevent, present a project that makes all the sense in the world, but if it doesn't meet their internal hurdles, mm-hmm. it's just not going anywhere. That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, I guess you got to have those defined pretty well yeah, before you start. That's funny. I've, that's what I've kind of grew up learning is basing it off the internal rate of return. Well, not not all, but it just seems like that was more focused on in education. The, what is the IRR? But interesting. So where does this all tie into then? We get all this information. We're basically building a portfolio, right, to turn into a, a report. And again, this is it's very dependent on the level of detail in the audit and what's required by the customer. But could you guys generalize what what a report may look like on the ranges? So, uh, from my perspective, there's really three components of the report. You have, well, the report's two sections. So, in, in section one is the physical findings and the calculation of cost avoidance and the cost estimates for the facility improvement measures or conservation measures. Mm -hmm. So very simple. Here's what it looks like and here's what the estimates look like. And then the second part of the report is basically project financing mechanisms, the economic metrics for all the facility measures and appendices which might include O&M measures that are extremely low cost and you know we usually put in a a paragraph or two on each one that says here's what the cost of not cleaning your cooling tower is here's the efficiency you lose and here's why it has to be cleaned on depending where you're at geographically twice or three times a year basis same thing with uh, filters and you know those kinds of things that need to be addressed but sometimes aren't or they're overlooked or the frequency is not appropriate and that's really it well it's very simplified i like that yeah it snaps a good picture of it though i mean that's i think that's a great breakdown of it well that that's just the report i mean really we didn't talk about how there's a we could we could or uh, other people have i'm sure talked about cost estimating forever you know, just some of these projects are so diverse and so far ranging that, you know, it can be everything from roofing to um, mm-hmm. lighting to mechanical systems replacement or rebuild. And that ability to estimate all that stuff is usually not all resident within one organization and requires right. some contractors to come in. Mm-hmm. So to get to that report is we we just talked about the report, not the process necessarily to get there. Right, right, right. Well, we talked about, I guess, yeah, half of the process. You would yeah, call half it. the process. Your, right. your part one, or I don't know if you want to even say that much, but yeah, we talked about half of the process on the energy side of it rather than the constructability right. side of it. I think it's it's important to remember too that the report content should reflect you know what stage you're at in the process. And it's not always a given that because you did a level one, let's say that a level two is going to follow after that and ultimately a level three. So in my world, it'd be, you know, a 
preliminary audit that goes into a feasibility analysis that goes into a detailed energy audit or final proposal. So your goal as you move forward through that process is to demonstrate a few things too, because your audience can vary uh, as well too. And right, it's easy to get in the trap of I'm writing to the facility manager or I'm writing to the the CFO or whoever your, your, your contact is, or you're most familiar with, or you're in that mindset, but you are speaking out to a wide audience. But a lot of the best reports I've seen have been, you know, simple reports too. You break down the existing conditions and Mm -hmm. through major systems and even the building envelope. If you're not impacting the building envelope, that can be an important thing to obviously understand, but also distill in, in the report. But the, the goal, at least in my experience, has always been how do we then work with the customer to decide if this is something that is appropriate for them and they want to go to the next step. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a, a good point, Nick. So we have our own way of doing things, I guess. But Nick, from your perspective, how often and with, you know, with what frequency or regularity and how much information do you communicate with the, the people you may interact with on the site during the audit as to when they should expect an update, how that update is communicated, whether formally or informally, and um, ask for feedback from them as far as, you know, I always like to have pretty good expectations as to what their financial metrics are, what the hurdles are. But have also identified that as you go forward and they start to see the magnitude of some projects that there is fluidity or latitude in those metrics based on what may be a really good project. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. How often do you communicate with them? Do you see those kinds of things change during the audit process in terms of the financial metrics? That was a big question wrapped in a lot of other stuff there, but so back when I was really doing a lot of energy, you know, energy auditing, like I said, we worked in teams. I was the energy auditor slash energy engineer. We had a project manager. We had a service guy, you know, service rep. And then we had the sales uh, executive and he was the guy driving everything. So if that's what you're referring to, like me being in contact with the, the key decision maker at the university or the plant, I just, I don't, I don't have that experience. Well, that was, that was a big, the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, okay, let's say you get to a point in the audit where maybe the boiler decentralization wasn't on the, on the list or wouldn't make the short threshold of, you know, oh, we need pick a number, three year payback, four year payback, five year payback. But the net present value of that project over a 20-year life was so enormous that you have to consider it. Like you, you wonder when do you bring that forward and how? Well, I have my own thoughts. I was just right, right, right. If you had any thoughts on that? Yep. I'm interested. I don't know if I can entirely follow that. To be honest, so, um, a uh, customer says. We only look at projects with a three-year payback or better. Okay, and let's just say they have a $2 million bill. You can identify a project that has a, that would 
reduce their consumption by pick a number, 20, 25% by either fuel switching, self-generating or something else. And that would make it have a seven year straight line payback. But over the 20 year life of the project, the net present value would be be big. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't meet their stated hurdle rate of five year payback or whatever it is. Do you still bring that forward to them and say, you know, this is something that would potentially be a game changer in your business. Do you want us to do more work on it? Oh, I would say absolutely. I would say you absolutely bring those opportunities. You're still a professional that they're retaining. Right. You might have some ideas that they didn't think about, but, you know, again, going too far down that road when they know or when you know what they're looking at, you know, is at your risk. But there's been plenty of opportunity or plenty of times when something like that has happened where they would have a simple payback, let's say target. And then you bring them the project and say, well, and we know some of these are not within, you know, your target range. And they take another look at it and go, well, maybe our target range is not entirely appropriate for what our long-term mission is here. I, I like, could a good example be like, for instance, you could put heat recovery on an air handler, but if that air handler is, I don't know, at the end of life, so far degraded that it's not, you know, they're constantly repairing it and maintaining it. You'll say, well, I could put heat recovery on this and you could probably get a payback in whatever, three years, but you should probably invest in a new air handler completely and it might not pay back so quick. But at that point, it's, if you bring in maintenance costs and all that stuff, your net present value will be higher in 20 years or whatever. Is that kind of what you're getting at? The point being, you're going to be replacing this air handling unit. Yeah. Right. Well, that's one That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is just, just say there are technologies and things that won't fall into your constraint of five-year payback, but they're reliable, stable technologies. And if they fit within the time horizon to operate the facility, you ought to at least look at them. I have to imagine if you go with that and with enough information to justify that, yeah, how could you not bring it forward? Well, sometimes you get a flat no, and sometimes you get exactly what you said. Yeah, we need to look at it. Yeah. So I have another question, Um, Nick. Now you go to a facility as the energy auditor, and we, we actually encountered this on a facility. And you find issues that are either they're, they're either a code, OSHA, or other violation. We went to a facility, wanted us to do an energy audit. I did it primarily as a favor to someone else because for me to go to a rented office space, 30-story office building, that's, that's like a punishment for something bad that I've done in my life. <laughs> so... <laughs> We go to this 30-story office building and meet the uh, maintenance guy. And I said, well, you know, you have every four floors, they have a mechanical room that has fan systems on it. Let's go look look at the first mechanical room. So we go in the mechanical room, two big air handlers, 45,000 CFM piece, roughly. And uh, I said, okay, so what's the mixed air temperature? And he kind of looked at me and said, and this was in uh, the winter time in upstate New York. So it should have been 55 degrees. That mixed air was 71 degrees. I said, huh, well, let's look at the BMS. 
out, you know, it's trying to maintain 55 degree mixed air. I said, I need to look in the mixed air plenum. Okay. And I go in and the, the uh, connection to the outside air intake was perfectly framed in, covered with plywood, plus two inches of foam insulation. Every air handler in the building. Oh, my no God. ventilation. Wow. <laughs> so I said, I'm sorry. You know, there's nothing I can do to help you reduce your heating costs. Yeah. Uh, they had hot water boilers in the basement. It's another one of those things where their building was built around them. And it would have been a nightmare to get them out, replace them with condensing boilers. But anyway, so I, I know what our course of action is. But can you think of uh, examples where you've been in buildings where, you know, for whatever reason, there's, they're doing something that is so uh, grossly outside the boundaries of acceptable operating. You just have to, you know, address it. Well, I've seen plenty of places, uh, yeah, with outside air dampers closed. Not Maybe not to that degree, but pretty close to it. Well, yeah, it needs to be, a, you need to notify, you know, your contacts there at the site about what you've seen. Uh, but nothing as far as an egregious safety violation that puts somebody in immediate danger. I can't say I've run across those. What are you getting at here? Well, uh, if you do, well, we have seen some safety violations, particularly as related to operating of uh, uh, steam boilers, some electrical systems that don't have, you know, either proper labeling or how many times do you go into a mechanical room and you see boxes and boxes of whatever stacked up against the uh, um, distribution panels. That in and of itself is a, is a violation. But what I'm getting at is, you know, you run the risk just like we did. We said, hey, there is no ventilation happening in this building. And, uh, you know, you need to address it. And they said, we are. And, uh, we don't need your services anymore, which is fine with me. I mean, that is, uh, you know, an extreme example, of course, but when you bring it to management personnel, that hey, you don't have sufficient labeling, you don't have sufficient clearances. In, in some ways, it's good to shed light on that kind of thing because uh, it shows you're being thorough and have, uh, you need to, you know, bring those to their, their attention. Well, yeah, and I've, I've definitely, in a, a lot of the, the school markets, you know, years ago, they were, that'd be one of the first things they would do when bills got too expensive or the cold complaints got too much or the equipment malfunctions piled up, you know, they would do just that and close down the ventilation dampers. And we've certainly been through those projects and then said, yeah, there's no way we can save you money because the first thing when we come in here and do any work, we're going to open up those dampers again. You need yeah. to ventilate the, the space. And, and there were customers that said, well, can you tell us what we would have spent if we were ventilating the whole time and kind of revise that baseline up, Right. Uh, how that worked internally with their financials? I, mean, I don't know, because it really wasn't a savings, but that wasn't the prime thing. They knew, at least these customers I'm thinking of, they knew this was an issue. They need to ventilate appropriately. They don't want to overventilate, but they certainly can't underventilate, and they knew they would have to do that. So we might as well do some other things to save money because we're going to take a big impact there. Uh, but it can be a balancing act too when you get in the facilities with detailing some of the things you've observed 
And obviously it may not paint the maintenance staff. You know, when you show a picture of a mixed air plenum and there's candy wrappers in there, right. And, you know, just, you know, filters caved in. It's just, it's disgusting, you know, but it is what it is. And you're certainly not going to carry somebody's water and you're not trying to get somebody in trouble necessarily, but you're just pointing out the facts. Well, has there ever been an instance where like you, like as a professional obligation or like a, a legality obligation, I assume you have to bring some stuff forward to maybe further, like, I don't know if, if they're, if a facility is doing something that could cause somebody to, to die or get hurt. And that said that happened, say that happens and they go back and they say, well, Mark audited this place and looked at that three months ago. Why didn't he say Like, where do you draw the line there? Or have you ever had to? Well, the, Clayton, that's a good question. So it, it really doesn't matter from a legal perspective. If you have experience with building systems and you identify a code violation or a risk and you do not bring it to the attention in writing of the building owners or operators, mm-hmm. then there's risk. And especially in the commissioning side, you've seen it firsthand. We test every fire alarm shut down. We test every free step we test every everything physically because absent that you just don't know how you know what else is in the in the wiring what else in terms of interlocks that may be interposed between those devices and and you basically you can't have that the same thing is true we go to a a facility and oh we've had trouble with this overload tripping or this whatever and you look at it and see an issue with the wiring or see an issue with a motor uh, you know we were at a site and um, there was a big exhaust fan i can't remember it was 100 or 150 horse big and the paint was burned off the motor Whew. i mean you could tell it was running hot you couldn't you know i usually give something the, the spit test and wet my fingers and touch them to, and it sizzled that's how yeah. hot that oh man so unless you put that in writing and say, Hey, we observed this, this is an unsafe condition represents a fire hazard, probable, you know, it looks like the, the motor has is drawing more amps than it should. There's no internal over, you know, thermal disc thermal overload on the motor. And it's an issue. If you don't put that in writing and you observed it and someone can prove you observed it and have knowledge of this kind of stuff, then you're going to end up on the stand. Ultimately, if you 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 need to bring that forward to management, if they do yeah. or they do not remediate that, that's kind of where you're. That's on them. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad I I we went through that, and I think we could probably get to a point where we can wrap this episode up. Maybe one one parting question for you guys: If you had to say, in your experience, you know, in industry, between level one, two, and three audits, what is the most common? One. Sorry, I thought it was like a quiz show. Uh, yes, level <laughs> one, definitely. Yeah, that but, makes sense. Yep. Well, I agree. Level ones are everywhere, and every utility company off- offers free level one audits, and you know, exactly. So, and they're great. They do exactly what they're intended to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the the intent is always clearly communicated to the customer 
that, hey, this is a walkthrough analysis. It, it's free. You're going to get two trained auditors who may have uh, some experience but are not extensively experienced. They walk through with a wet thumb. Yeah, hey, I think when I say wet thumb, you know, yep. you lick your thumb and see which way the wind's blowing. Yeah, they walk through with a wet thumb and say, yep, you have opportunities. Here's what will happen if you change the lights, if you put on low flush fixtures. It, it's, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But you won't get um, data loggers and correlation analysis and those kinds of things that will give you a really high degree of certainty on some sophisticated retrofits. Now, that said, those audits also follow the precepts of what are typically the rebate programs. Nowadays, custom, uh, I'm sorry, not custom, but standard rebates are available for motor replacements, speed drives, those kinds of things. You don't even have to do any kind of analysis to get electric rebates for those. All they do is come back and inspect that the drives are installed and the motors are replaced. So, you know, the more detailed things like chiller replacements, et cetera, they still do some before and after baseline and post-retrofit verification. But what used to be complicated retrofits, not anymore. Now they're standard. Right. I'll take this one step a little bit further with the level one audits. I would say that there's been probably many of those that have actually done more harm to that facility, actually implementing some worthwhile and reasonable energy conservation measures because yeah, a lot of them are just uh, whether it's a drive by or you haven't even seen the building, but it's something like, you know, you're, you have a building, you must have windows, consider replacing your windows with, and then some descriptions about the different thermal properties of windows. And, you know, a lot of customers, I can't blame them. And I've talked to them and said, well, we had this, this audit done, a preliminary by so-and-so. It didn't tell us anything. So we haven't pursued anything else. And so a lot of times the free and the no cost audits, you know, they can be overpriced if uh, you don't have a, I guess, a reputable firm in there or you kind of define what you want them to look at or look for. It right. can be very, very generic and, and actually hurt the process. With your, with your rapid, overwhelming response on level one, I thought you were a big level one advocate there, Nick. <laughs> well, no, it was just an educated guess that <laughs> yeah. before you have a level three, you probably have a level one and two and yep. so forth. But I've right. seen all of those, these audits piled up, whether they're called level one or not, but they're, they're paperweights or they can be. But other times, I don't want to gloss over this, but they're you know, completely appropriate starting points where a successful energy program is launched and perpetuated for years, too. I like it. Well put. And I think with that being said, guys, we'll wrap up this podcast episode. So thanks, guys, for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, kind of discussing the energy audit process and breaking it up. Our next episode, we will be discussing calculations of financial metrics. So stay tuned. Thanks a lot. And have a great day.